Amen. What is God's relationship to culture? That's the question this morning. We just read the passage of Paul's interaction with the culture of Athens in the year 50 AD or so. A time when gods of many kinds were worshipped in that city or a pantheon of gods were worshipped. And so as we enter into the month of October in a city like Salem, and we're given the text Acts 17 on the first Sunday of the month of October, maybe God is trying to tell us this morning how we can interact with our culture as a believer in a city like this. So that's the question I want to press in on this morning, is how can we as a church and as Christians relate to our culture in Salem, Massachusetts, in a time like this? Many people have asked me, uh, what are you doing for Halloween this year? And some of that is a personal question. You know, what are you as a Christian or as a person doing for Halloween? And some of it is, what are, what are you planning for your church to do for Halloween? And it's a tough question because Halloween has come to, to mean a lot of different things. And particularly in this city, it has very deep connotations of darkness and even evil. And so the question of what is a Christian to do with Halloween is a tough question. And I think even particularly, what is a Christian in Salem to do on Halloween is also a tricky question. So the better question I think to ask this morning is how does the gospel of Jesus connect to culture? And what can we learn from the scriptures this morning that might help us discern how to live out our days for these next 28 days in October here in Salem? The motto of the city of Salem, which I learned just a couple of weeks ago, starts, we mentioned earlier about Adoniram Judson going off as a missionary to the Far East. Well, Salem has a rich history of sending ships to the Far East uh, from from its history. And the motto of Salem, which continues on into the current day, is, quote, to the farthest port of the rich East, end quote. That's the Salem motto. And as I think about that in relationship to missions and to Christians being called to go to places with the good news, I think there's a connection there we can make. How can one message, the good news of Jesus, possibly be for all people? Because that's what Paul is bringing with him into the city of Athens with many, many gods. So Acts 17 today gives us a stunning example of how the gospel engages with cultures of various kinds. And there's a tendency for each of us today as as Christians to probably swing from one extreme to the other on how we engage with culture, with one option being just remove ourselves from culture and just kind of be on the outside and ignore it, stay away from it because it can be dangerous or tricky, and so just be our own culture. The other side being Let's just be all the way in it and be involved in everything. And the danger there is maybe getting, to use a big word, syncretistic or mixing our religion, our faith with other religions or other faiths, which you see happen in places and in churches even. But the gospel of Jesus, and Acts 17 particularly, gives a much more nuanced understanding of how the gospel and culture relate. Of it's not just Christ against culture, or Christ above culture, or Christ in culture, 
It's much more of an idea of Christ being uh, a transformer of culture. Or Christ being in the midst of culture, bringing with it a countercultural good news. So Acts, we've been saying for months, is God on the move. God is moving his gospel and his spirit into cultures where good news and transformation of life happens. And today, we see it in three cultures. So the scripture that Brian read was the Athens part, which is, we're going to focus a lot on that part, but there's two other places Paul goes before this in Acts 17 that we're going to look at. And, and just, to, just to kind of catch you up on what's happening in Acts 17, you remember last week, Acts 16, Paul was in jail. Paul and Silas and Timothy, they were in jail in Philippi. At the end of the chapter, they get out of jail, they're released. Um, but what happens is... Uh, They've actually separated at this point. Paul kind of goes on in front of them, and he goes uh, to Thessalonica with Silas here. And so as we begin this morning, I'm going to just open up a couple of points. But let me just give you this, this long statement, which is gonna, what we're going to unpack. This is the long statement of how I think the gospel and culture interact. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is the universal communication of the beautiful good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that is uniquely beautiful to every culture. It's a universal communication of what Jesus has done, his life, death, and resurrection, that is uniquely beautiful to every single culture, including Salem. So the gospel is uniquely beautiful to Salem in a way that's just a little bit different than how it's uniquely beautiful to Athens, Greece, or to Gloucester, or to San Francisco, or pick your city. The gospel finds beauty and expression in every place it goes in uniqueness. And this morning is trying to nudge us towards how is it uniquely beautiful in Salem? What can the good news be for Salem or our city in this place? But before we get to that point, let's talk a little bit more about how the gospel is a universal communication. So the first point is, uh, how is the gospel, how, how does the gospel encounter every culture on the planet? What's the universal communication of the gospel? And I, it began to make me question, what are some other things that are universally communicated around the world? Or things that have made their way into every single culture? There's not many, but there's a couple. You can go almost anywhere around the world today and probably find a Coca-Cola Coca-Cola has been evangelized around the world pretty well. Coca-Cola you can find. You can find the golden arches of McDonald's in just about every country in the world now. So there are a few things that are universally communicated, but the gospel is one of those few that is universally communicated and universally relevant to the whole world, to every single culture. And so how does the gospel encounter culture? This is a good, a good question for us to chew on. And I'm gonna, I want to just make one point here at the beginning. The gospel encounters cultures. Again, think about that word culture. What, what, what comes to mind when you think of culture? Maybe it's food. Maybe it's the way people dress. Maybe it's music. Maybe it's some kind of atmosphere. But the gospel encounters cultures through people. You see, people are the ones that make up cultures. So you all make up the culture of Salem or Marblehead or wherever you are right now. 
And the things you wear, the foods you eat, the, the songs you sing, those are all from people within cultures. But the gospel encounters cultures through people, through real human living people, not some abstract or vague idea of culture. But the gospel and culture are personal because they're personal to individuals. The gospel is for human hearts. And the culture of a, of a city or a place is about the heart. And so while Salem is a culture as a place, it's a place because it's filled with people, right? If, it, if this was just uninhabited land, there wouldn't be much culture to it. It just would be forest or wetlands, and there wouldn't be much culture with it. But because you live here, culture comes with it. And now that's where the trickiness happens, right? Because different people live out their lives in different ways. And in a city like Salem, you see a lot of eclectic ways of living. You see some people who worship Jesus. You see some people who worship Satan. You see some people who don't care about God at all. You see some people who make it their every life ambition to know who God is. And you see a lot of people who are in the middle or bring a lot of things together and just make their own thing out of it. Some people in this city probably worship God and Satan because that's how complicated our culture has gotten. And so, but that is part of what makes a culture a culture. And so when you look at Acts 17, I don't, I don't want you to miss the people in these cultures. You see Jews, you see devout Greeks, you see women, you see this guy named Jason and his family. You see philosophers, the Stoics and the Epicureans. You see this Areopagus that Brian mentioned in the scripture reading, which is a hundred elite religious people who gathered together to hear new ideas about what religion is like. That is what culture is, though. It's people that make culture. Now, what does, what does the gospel actually communicate universally within those cultures? And I think it's at least four things that are really important that come out in this text this morning, from Thessalonica to Berea to Athens. When Paul goes to each of these three places, four things are communicated universally, without much you know, cultural nuance. He's just, four things are, are communicated. Number one, a universal authority, which is the scriptures. When Paul goes into Thessalonica or to Berea or to Athens, he brings the word of God and the scriptures with him. And that's what he uses to teach and to explain truth and to understand uh, what life is all about. He brings a universal authority of scriptures. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the, to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intention of man. When the word of God is read and taught, it gets to your soul and spirit in a way that nothing else can. And that's why it's universally an authority. Number two, the second thing that, the bio, that, uh, that Paul brings universally is a universal rebuke or a revealing about their culture. Particularly, he brings out the universal rebuke of the worthlessness of worshiping idols. So when Paul goes into Thessalonica and to Berea and to Athens, and particularly in Athens, because you, you heard it read earlier, he's pointing out statues that are inscribed to the unknown God for instance, on the pantheon of gods in Athens. But he does it in other places, too. He points out things that are, are worthless to worship, idols. 
The gospel, you see, naturally, when, it, when you preach the word, when you bring the authority of scripture, it naturally comes with it a rebuke of sin or, or a rebuke of things that are not true because it brings the beauty of Jesus into that culture. And so I, I was talking about this last night with Aiden and Kara and Sarah, and I said, we'll see if it makes the cut into the sermon. I think it did. We were trying to think of things that, that naturally reveal things that you can't see on the outside. Like, what are things, like, if you were to look at someone and say, that person looks fine, but what's something that if you were to, if you were to put something on them or do something to them, it would, it would reveal something inside that you wouldn't otherwise see? So the best example we came up with was an x-ray machine. Maybe you walk into a hospital and you have to take an x-ray, and in that they find a broken bone or a torn ligament or a mass or something that you didn't know was there from the outside. And that's a little bit what the gospel is like. The gospel, when it, when it is communicated, when it is read, it naturally brings up the brokenness that we can't see in ourselves. It's a, it's a microscope on our life, and it shows us the fractures that need to be healed. And that's actually a gracious thing. It may not feel good when it happens because you're saying, why are you pointing out my my brokenness, but it actually is part of bringing about the healing that we all need. Because the gospel not only is the revealer of the things that are broken, but it also is the restoration of the brokenness. And that's the third point, is the gospel brings a universal summons or a, a call. And by that, I mean, you'll see Paul in each, in each one of these sections today, when he brings the gospel, it comes to a place of decision. One, one writer says, salvation is not an invitation from a buddy, but a summons from a king. When Paul brings the good news, he doesn't say, hey, Jesus really wants to hang out with you and get to know you better. Would you be up for that? You want to go get coffee sometime? No, Paul is coming saying the king is ushering you into his presence and has a royal delegation for you to live your life with. See the difference? It's a summons to new life, to new calling. And with that comes belief in him, trust in him, and doing his work. And that is actually the healing of your brokenness. Coming to this Jesus who is the king, who dresses you in his royal garb and sends you out as his messenger. And the last thing that the, the, the gospel universally proclaims is the most important one. It's what I'll call the the eternal line in the sand. In each one of these three encounters to these different unique cultures, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Paul ultimately brings the people to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because he says this is the line in the sand for all of human history. Your life's destiny is determined by what you think happened to Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Do you believe he rose from the dead? Or do you believe he was just a good moral teacher who died a sacrificial death? Paul says everything hinges on Christians believing that Jesus rose from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15 actually gives the good options for us. It says, if Christ is not resurrected, if his resurrection is not true, then all of what we're doing is worthless. 
1 Corinthians 15, 12. It says, verse 13 now, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then, then, they're not, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We were even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. For if the, red are, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. But, he says, if he has been raised, then everything in human history is changed. Because that validates then that he is who he says he is. That he is the son of God. And that eternal life has been opened for all cultures, for every culture, for every person. And that's what we proclaim in this church, is that we believe Jesus raised from the dead. Because there is rational, rational reasonable evidence to show us life. Again, like, like, like I tell people, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, where is his body? Where is he now then? He's not in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb anymore. The tomb is empty And thousands of witnesses and people throughout history's lives have been changed by this man who they are certain has been raised from the dead. And that's what I'm going to preach to you. Because that brings life and hope for all of us. We bank our life on him because we believe in a resurrected Jesus. So, that's what the gospel universally proclaims. Now let's look at some individual cultures before we get to Salem. Acts 17 gives us three case studies. Like I said, Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. Each of the three places exposes a different response to Paul's preaching. Thessalonica, I want you to look at the beginning here. Chapter 17, verses 1 to 9. This is the first place Paul goes. I want you to look at verse 6. It says here, I'm sorry, verse, yeah, verse 6. It says, uh, halfway down, when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers, so Jason is this family of believers, and some of his brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. So this is, this is how the Christians were known in Thessalonica. They had this reputation of turning the world upside down, or people who, who were taking something that was generally accepted and flipping it up upside down. They said that's what Christians are known as, as people who are unsettling the norm. They were people that, that shook the pot in Thessalonica. And so the people, of the, the, the Thessalonian people had a hard time believing this. They, they saw them as people who were, who were turning things upside down. And yet still there were people who believed in Thessalonica, as it says here. It says there were some who believed uh, uh, in, in, in what Paul was saying. It says in verse 4, Some were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many number of the Greeks, and some of, of the women as well. But most of the people saw the gospel as upside down. And maybe you've had some of these encounters with people as well when you share about them, share about what you believe to them. And they may say to you, that just feels upside down to me. And you know what? They're exactly right. The resurrection of Jesus has turned the world upside down. But as on the front of your bulletin is a quote from Billy Graham, it says, the people who in the first century were told that they had turned the world upside down, they turned the world upside down because their hearts had been turned right side up. If your heart is turned right side up, it'll actually appear in the world like you're turning the world upside down because most of the world's heart 
is still actually upside down and is in need of hope. Secondly, how is, how is the gospel seen in Berea? Look at verses 10 to 15. You see a totally different response here. In verses 10 to 15, it says they go into Berea. And in verse 11, it says, uh, They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. And many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women and of high standing men as well. And so the people in Berea received the gospel with eagerness. They were ready for it. Something about what Paul brought in, it met their culture where they already were. And they grabbed onto the gospel and they believed it with eagerness. They were ready to examine it for themselves. And then in Athens, which is what Brian read earlier, how was it received in Athens? Many ways. But look at verse 20 in particular. Verse, chapter 17, verse 20. For you bring some strange things to our ears. You're talking about a resurrected Jewish carpenter from Nazareth as God? Again, who is Paul talking to here? He's talking to to religious people who believed in the pantheon of gods. People like Zeus. People who are into philosophy like Stoicism and Epicureanism. Which we're not going to do a philosophy class here, but those were people that really got into the depths of what does it mean to be human. And they had all these philosophies about it. And it says later that they they were really interested in hearing new things. But this is strange, Paul, what you're talking about. The people in in Athens saw it as strange, or as something that was a guest to their society. But what do they do? They bring Paul in to their 100-person council, the Areopagus, and they say, tell us, Paul, tell us about your new strange belief. Try to relate it to us. And I think it's really interesting how Paul, we don't have, we don't have the time to go you know, verse by verse this morning through how Paul contextualizes the gospel into Athens. But do you notice here that he doesn't use direct quotes of scripture? He doesn't like proclaim it on them in a preaching style. He wouldn't have been doing what I'm doing like in a preaching way. But he uses their poets. He quotes their own poets. He he looks at what at their statues and their idols, and he points out, you know, he's like he's like you're worshiping a god who is unknown. You don't even have a name for this god, and you're worshiping him. And he says the god I'm bringing to you doesn't live in human temples, but he's able to be found by everybody. He's a living god. And then ultimately he finishes, like I said, with the rest of them, with the resurrection of Jesus. On verse uh, 31, it says, Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Who's that man? Jesus. He doesn't say his name here. You know that. He's kind of walking carefully here. And he says, And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That's his climax of his argument. In verse 32, what do the Athenians say? When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some people mocked him. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. And some men who joined him believed. And some also, the Dionysius, the Areopagite, she was someone who was in that room. Or he was someone who was in that room. And a woman named Demarius and others with him. Some people believed right there on the spot. Their hearts were ready in the culture. Others needed more time. Others mocked him. 
But this story unfolds throughout the, the, uh, the New Testament of how Paul brings the gospel into new cultures. And as we transition to our last point here, which is on the city of Salem here, I'm just going to give some practical points for us to think through October and our, our culture here in Salem. How does the gospel relate to our culture? I want us to see here how mocking, belief, we want to hear more about this. Most people in our city are going to find themselves in one of those categories. But there's a lot of people in our city who have never heard the good news of Jesus. And we're not going to know what they're, what they're going to believe until we actually tell them what it is. And we believe as a church that the resurrection of Jesus is good news for every culture, for every person, for the whole world. And that's why we celebrate sending missionaries to Bolivia, because they're going to take the gospel to people who have not yet heard. But just as much, we're going to commission ourselves every Sunday back into our world to take the good news of a risen Jesus into our workplaces, into our families, into our city, because we believe there's people here that need that good news. And some may mock us, but some may believe. And a whole lot in the middle will say, tell me more about that. May we be ready to hear that answer. So just a couple of things here for Salem as we go into October. There's a a retired pastor down south named Scotty Smith who has this quote. He says, You can know the lyric of the gospel, but not hear the music. Remember last week we talked about singing and music. I think there's also people in our city who who know the gospel, know the story of Jesus, and yes, he died on the cross, or maybe they're practicing Catholics, for instance, and they know a lot of the scripture stories, but maybe the beauty of the music has been lost. The beauty of what comes along with the lyric and that's where, that's where the gospel, we, and we come in with our lives of singing the music back to our culture. So these are a couple of things I would say to our city. God is for you as a person. People in Salem are seeking to find themselves, to express themselves in genuineness, to find their identity. And here's what I would say to you. God has created you beautifully in his image. He loves you, and he has given you a distinct, unique purpose in life. And he sees the brokenness and sin in your life and wants nothing more than to put you back into, into place, to put you back together, to make you the truest version of you. People in Salem are, are seeking spirituality very clearly. And he's made a way for you to experience the fullness of life in Jesus by the cross and by the resurrection. And he's given us his life-giving Holy Spirit to regenerate our hearts and to help us see the world in beauty. He's given us the truth of the scriptures, which is, if God is for us, who can ever be against us? You can be redeemed and made anew by believing in Jesus. God, I believe, is for Salem. There is a culture in Salem that God sees that can be made beautiful and to flourish and to be transformed for his purposes, for his kingdom. God created every culture. He loves culture and diversity of expression, including Salem. And yet God sees the brokenness of this city too, and he desires to make it the best version of Salem it can possibly be. God desires to see the uniqueness of Salem in its truest, 
fullest, most redeemed form to be part of the new creation and to bring its glory into that new Jerusalem. The need for us as a church is to be a faithful presence during this city, during, during this October in this city. And the same impact Paul had in Athens by going and being a faithful presence, may you do that as well. To pray for the city, to develop lasting and genuine friendships and relationships with people, to quietly live out your faith in trust and in diligence, to live for the gospel and to be people of good news by loving Jesus and having his kingdom purposes in mind. I'll just finish with this quote from Michael Lowe, uh, which is the president of Lausanne, Sarah's organization that she works for. And this, this will lead us into the taking of communion together. Michael Lowe talks about the 99% and the 1%. The 99% of Christians are people that are not pastors or missionaries. So the vast majority of you, with the exception of Aiden and Kara, I guess. You guys are the 99% of Christians. I'm the 1%. And he says this, if we rely upon pastors and those in professional Christian ministry to share the gospel, it will never touch many people's lives in many spheres of our society. The only way that people in your company, in your school, in your neighborhood, on your sports team, in your restaurant, in your theater troupe, the only way they're going to be touched by the gospel is through you. The gospel is for every culture. I believe God has great things in store for this church in this city through our witness. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to take communion together. Lord, I pray that as we come to the end of this teaching, we would be encouraged as bearers of good news in a culture that needs it so much. Lord, would you fill us with the hope of the gospel, the power of the gospel to transform lives and cities. And Lord, we do pray for our city that many would come to know you, but particularly they would come to know you through our meager gentle and lowly witness, the trueness and genuineness of our own lives. May we reflect Jesus just as Paul did in Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.